Pod Only Knows is a Cage Club podcast. For other smart podcasts on culture, pop, and otherwise, go to cageclub.me. You can contact us via email at pok at cageclub.me. You can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. And you can find me at Kelly underscore J underscore Baker. And you can find the show on Twitter at PodOnlyKnowsPod. The show is written and produced by us. Welcome to Pod Only Knows. I'm John Brooks. And I am Kelly Baker. What's new, Kelly, aside from the fact that we've both been struggling with late wintertime sicknesses over the last couple of weeks? Um, I'm applying for graduate school. Again? Is, another yes, one? Another you're already, one. You're already a doctor. You don't I'm have to go doctor. to school anymore. You're I done. shouldn't have to. I shouldn't no. have to. But I'm applying yeah. for MFA programs. So okay. <laughs> that's what's I know. This is the reaction I get from everyone where they're like, why more school? Why aren't you done? Don't Isn't they? It like yeah. third grade. Yeah. Sort of haven't you like hit this. the cap? <laughs> I Yeah, you would think so. <laughs> that sort of thing. So I just sent off my last set of um, applications for MFA programs today. So I'm applying to three different programs for wow. different reasons. Yeah. For low res, uh, low residency MFA programs. Um, cool. Which are primarily me working by myself with like mentors is how they have them set up. Um, and yeah, so we'll see how that goes. I meet with a director of graduate studies tomorrow for one of them to talk about their program and what it particularly involves, which just got me nervous, which is silly since I've already done a whole bunch of school. Yes. Before. You've done all the school. I've done all the school. <laughs> you finished school. <laughs> I've finished school. I always so wanted to go back and get school. a second bachelor's degree. I loved getting my yeah. bachelor's. That was so much fun. Yeah. I want to get a well, bunch of those. I was I tempted. I was really tempted where I was like, why yeah. would I just do that? And then I was like, you know, I always kind of wanted an MFA. And so yeah. I thought, well, why not? Let's see what happens when applying for these sorts of things. But it means you have to do silly stuff like track down transcripts from, you know, the 90s from that one college (laughs) that you went to for like teacher recommendations, right? You know, yeah, give people for recommendations. Why an MFA? Oh, so part of it is that I just want to spend some time working on writing because I think that Mm -hmm. would be fun. The other part of it is eventually I would like to be able to teach writing yeah. and um, writing like other professional careers have credentials. So mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. need credentials. They don't care about my religious studies PhD so much um, <laughs> or the fact that I've written books. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. <laughs> much to my chagrin, right? Like right. Um, I can't be like, but I but I've written things. As they say, those that can can do can't teach. I don't know. Wait, that's not how Wait, it goes. Wait, that's not how it goes. Something, something like, like that. that. Some, yeah. Something weird like that's that. So, yeah. So, so that's like what's going on with me is that I've been writing personal statements, which are the bane of my existence and I hate them. Um, yeah. So I don't know that that counts as good news, but it's news. Oh, is definitely. that is that your good news? Yeah. I'm going to consider that my good news too. I'm going to do okay. both at one time. So yeah. Cool. That's what I'm gonna say, but well, yeah. It's, it's yeah, be better news if you get accepted. It but, will be better um... news if I get accepted. <laughs> Otherwise, it's gonna be one of those like really like sad panda moments where I get to come on and be like, "Well, listeners, yeah, <laughs> I didn't get accepted." 
that I made someone write a recommendation letter for me. Yeah, I mean, that's the like nightmare scenario that plays out in my dreams, right? Is the like yeah. rejection piece. Um, so we'll see. Um, but yeah, no, I have a good support crew that are like, you're being silly, but you never yeah. know how these sorts of things work out. And you have to get also, the big envelope, not the little envelope. That's right, right? Or <laughs> or they're like, we'll call you or we'll email you. Yeah, that doesn't even happen anymore. It's just emails now. Yeah, there's no, there's yeah. no big and small envelope anymore. Which I was like, sad. please don't call me to reject me. Don't do that to anyone <laughs> ever. No one wants to be on that phone call. <laughs> no, that's true. I'm like, just send me a very um, impersonal email. Thank you to let me know that you didn't want me for your program. That's yeah. what I would like. Thanks. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I can't so. imagine doing more school, man. I you you are you are. I mean, I just got my master's. Yeah, here you're like, too close. I think I'm far enough away maybe. that I I think it's like with kids. Where once yeah. you're like far enough away from like the infant stage, you're like, oh, I could have another one, right? Well, I took you 20 know? years between graduations. So yeah. maybe when I'm 64, I'll yeah. have my doctorate. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, maybe. I, mm, yep. uh, just even, but even like, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I want to have it. Just give it to me. Like, just pretend, yeah. I whatever. I just want to have it. Yeah. You, know, you just At that point, you can like con someone into an honorary one is there some kind right? of equivalency like, program know? where i've read enough books that it just like i you know you would I, hope so I, yeah that'd be nice yeah there's no doctor's equivalency no uh, i don't i don't think so unfortunately the GR, no not the gr the ged of uh of getting a doctorate no, i don't think no. so or right, there would be lots of people like, yeah like yeah. here <laughs> test me test me now i'll do it yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> to make that happen. No, um, yeah, no, it was one of those things where my um, my youngest child, who was 10, was like, aren't you awful old to be doing this? And I was yeah. like, thanks, bud. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I was like, I appreciate that one um, there. But with these like low residency programs, it tends to be non-traditional students, obviously, yeah. who are folks that just want an MFA or want to spend some time on writing or that sort of thing. So it's a program yeah. that caters to students who are like coming back after a long time away from school or just have done this. So, I mean, they're graduating folks that are in their like 70s and 80s too, you know, which mm-hmm. is kind of a neat thing. Um, so cool. I was, yeah. I was like, so take that kid. I'm not going to be yeah. the oldest student in this program we have somebody that's 78 right now anyway well so. yeah when i when i went to my commencement in september october um i was probably somewhere in the middle like of the people mm-hmm. getting their masters like age wise wise like i think i was probably you know there were certainly people like 10 years younger and 10 years older but like yeah i think i was right there in the hey in the wheelhouse so yeah. you know that's not it's not abnormal uh especially especially these days to get well and you you would be getting a second master's right <laughs> so, yeah, i know jeez account but like yeah yep. yeah <laughs> uh, yeah we don't have time for it anymore we have to wait till we're in our 40s and then you know do it online or whatever right so, yep pretty um, much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pretty much so what's yours? My 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 good news is uh, all of our new listeners. Hello, hi, welcome. <laughs> Yay! That's super nice, exciting. Nice, nice to have you. So um, it seems, based on like what I'm looking at of the data, that since you did the episode recently of Straight White American Jesus, that some people have found us through awesome. um, through that episode. So. 
welcome and we hope you have a good time <laughs> yes we do and we hope you don't regret your decision of <laughs> dropping in on our podcast and saying and and saying hello but um no it's really cool so yeah we we we, we seem to be um getting new people in which is cool and uh yeah say hi to us send us an email um you know love to hear what you think uh, and all that sort of thing but um yeah that's very cool i thought that was that was pretty exciting is there are is it in two parts are you doing a second part of, i of think that? i think he decided to break it, it into two parts yeah. yeah is what he decided yeah. to do so yeah. um rad just yeah. like dragging things out you know yeah. yeah yeah that's okay i'll take it you know <laughs> It was, a, it was a lovely, like, interview that we did in one part, yeah. But, yeah. No, it is really good. Do you want to say what it was a little bit about? I mean, if, in case people are Yeah, are sure. So there. for our listeners who aren't new, um, I was on um, Straight White American Jesus talking about gospel according to the Klan. So they're mm-hmm. highlighting books um, in this election year that could be relevant. And unfortunately, <laughs> that book is still somewhat relevant. Yes. things so um so he and i had a nice chat about just some of the content of that book and some of the things around it so it was good um cool. but yeah so i think part two drops this is coming monday so awesome yeah. awesome um yeah we'll check that out if you don't listen to that show already and if you do and you're you're new here um welcome and uh we've got a cool episode today that i'm very excited about because uh, our guest today is Dr. Nicole Simmons, who is an assistant professor of Christian ethics. Her work sits at the intersection of Christian ethics and women, gender, and sexuality studies. Among other things, Dr. Simmons' research engages issues around faith-based sex trafficking interventions and commercial sex work, Caribbean cultural practices, such as carnival masquerading and embodied celebration. And she theorizes how trends in popular culture around performances of race, sex, and sexuality reveal and or conceal opportunity for ethical reflection. Dr. Simmons identifies as Black Catholic, a religious tradition that follows the right of the Roman Catholic Church, but is driven by the spirit of Blackness in all its forms according to Black people's diasporic origins and heritage. She is a parishioner of Our, at Our Lady of Lords and Mother Church of African American Catholics in the Archdiocese of Atlanta. And here she is joining us now. Hello, Nicole. Welcome. Nice to see you. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. Hey, John, and hey, Kelly, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited for this time to chat. We are, we are we, so glad to have we you. We are delighted to have you. Yeah. So for context, um, it's funny because off mic, <laughs> we had uh, a conversation last week um, because our guest last week uh was someone that I was pretty sure that I had run into before, but I, I, I had to confirm that. Uh, and the reason was that I, I went to an event at Princeton University that had something to do with, the, with, with Krista Tippett's book that she produced, that she released that year. And I went there like for BeliefNet. <laughs> and that's where Nicole and I uh, used to work together um, at a website that does it still exist in some? It does in some capacity, right? It's still it does. Like a thing. It does. Yeah, uh, a shadow of its former self. Maybe not the um, world's largest faith and spirituality website, but like it's no. it's still up there. I think. Is it really? I mean, it's still Who goes up. there. It's still up. Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, yeah. that's 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 what we'll say. 
I know it's exchanged hands a few times um, in the in the interim years, but um, yeah. So <laughs> back when working at the internet was a thing you could do, um, that's 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 what we did. So how's life been since then, Nicole? You've you've since become a doctor and and done some very cool and impressive things. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about your journey from? from your days in New York City at BeliefNet to becoming a a doctor of smart things uh, in, the, in the ensuing, ensuing years. A uh, doctor of smart things. I love that. Um, but yeah, I also love that you bring up the BeliefNet heritage because I yep. think that I owe BeliefNet a lot for the life that I currently live. Um, you know, landing at BeliefNet was like a fluke, really. Um, it was... Mm-hmm. It was because I sent a blind cover letter. So I was working in fashion, right? I graduated from college with a degree in journalism. And I was just like really rearing to go and be like that fashion and entertainment journalism girly. But, you know, as you two may well know, like journalism at that point and now had high turnover rates, right? So I was working at InStyle Magazine and the axe was about to drop. But, you know, God was already moving in mysterious. And so I was kind of moved from being the assistant to the exec, one of the executive editors to a special issue of InStyle. And it gave me time to kind of discern, like, what am I doing? What do I want to do? And send a lot of blind cover letters to a lot of places that included BeliefNet.com. I barely I barely knew what BeliefNet.com was, but I felt I felt inspired for some reason to send the blind cover letter. Right. This is back when we were still typing out letters and putting them on that fancy paper, that fancy textured paper that came in a fancy box for like $8.99 a pack. Uh, and you'd slip your cover letter into the manila envelope. But yeah, I mm-hmm. sent the blind cover letter to BeliefNet, expressing my interest in being an assistant editor at the website. And I think maybe it was a call for like a Christianity editor. Like only, I I didn't know what that was, but I was like, let's, let's go for it. I can edit Christianity. Yeah, that, like, sounds, that sounds doable. This makes sense. Um, and I, a few weeks later, maybe like a month later, I heard back I think it was, I don't even remember the name of the person who contacted me, Um, but I heard back and I went for an interview where I really convinced them that I knew a lot about the interwebs at that point, right? Because I mean, it was still still in the early stages of like web-based journalism. So a lot of us were flying by the seat of our pants and acting like we knew about (laughs) websites in ways that we really didn't know. I was learning things as I went, but they, they believed me. And yep. I ended up working at BeliefNet for four years. And was it, it was, yeah, I think it was four, four years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it was four years. Um, met a lot of great people, but what was really profound about the journey was meeting all of these people who either went to seminary or religious studies programs. Um, yeah. And so like, there were quite a few of like upper level editors at BeliefNet who were in spaces such as Yale and Harvard, you know, they did religious studies. And I was like, that's a thing. Like I didn't, I I really didn't, I didn't know it was a thing. I really did not know it was a thing to go to school. That's a recurring theme on this show is people not knowing it was a thing before they did it. Yeah. So I didn't know that people went to school for religious studies and didn't become pastors, priests, bishops after that. So I wouldn't say I was enamored of the concept at that point. I was still I was still like, wow, this is interesting until 
another axe was about to drop, of course, right? You know, BeliefNet was changing a lot of hands over the time that I was there. And I had a conversation with someone, I I think it was maybe Gordon Governs, uh, who I think himself had like an MDiv or was working on an MDiv and was just talking about his process. And then another friend who just knew about my journalism trajectory was like, have you ever considered going to seminary? And I was like, I was not appalled by the idea. Like (laughs) the idea did not scare me. Um, And I had been thinking about graduate school before then. And I was just like, huh. So I, you know, I started poking around. I knew people who went to like Union Theological or like I said, to Princeton Theological, to all these different places. But when I looked at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, when I just simply went to the website, I remember being drawn in. I saw the uh, top of their chapel, Canon Chapel, which has this carved out cross in stone. And something about it just felt so compelling. So like, I really made plans to fly to Atlanta, like quick, fast and in a hurry. And I did like one of those visit weekends where I got to sit and sample classes. And that was literally Mm -hmm. the weekend that I fell in love with like theology and ethics. I heard two lectures, uh, one by the systematic theologian, uh, Dr. Ian McFarlane, and the other by Christian social ethicist, Dr. Elinot Marshall. And I was like, I want more of this. I mm. I want more of this, right? And BeliefNet fed that to the point where like, you know, John will remember, we were always getting a lot of books. So I had like- Oh my God, I still have a bunch. Me too. Yeah, it was the best part. So like yeah. books on books on books. Like I was reading, I was reading John Calvin in my spare time, even though I was not reformed. I am not reformed now, maybe reformed in a yeah. way, but like, you know, I'm reading yeah. John Calvin and Luther and Bonhoeffer and all these people- as like a lay person, just, just because, cause I was also a person of faith who was always interested in deepening my faith. So yeah, went to Candler, did the visit weekend, filled out the application, got accepted. And that actually happened around the same time that I was about to be laid off from BeliefNet anyways. Yeah. Uh, cause I think, I think Fox was selling us actually. Yep. I think we were yep. owned by News Corp Fox. And yes, we were. <laughs> it was, it was a, I'm sure John remembers it was such a strange time where I remember oh the God. day when the majority of the staff of BeliefNet got laid off. Um, and that was really like a godsend moment for me because like I knew I wanted to go, but I needed an extra like kick out of the nest. So yeah. to be laid off <laughs> from a job right before you start a graduate school program, before I was about to turn, you know, 30 or something was just amazing. And so, you know, did my MD yeah. Candler, got really interested in these big ethical questions around sexuality, sexual ethics, embodiment, Black people stuff. Like yeah. I wanted new yeah. and fresh ways to think about my faith that weren't tied to mm-hmm. conservative Christian traditions that I yeah. inherited, right? My parents are, you know, Caribbean and Black people who what they know is you train up a child in the way that she should go. So they'd send me to Baptist churches. When we moved from New York to Florida, I went to a Baptist church. I was baptized in a Southern Baptist church uh, mm-hmm. before I knew that the SBC was a wild, is a, is a wild, it's a wild place. Um, so well, we've all learned a lot more about that lately. Yeah. But yes. yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, I was just looking for ways to, to deepen 
the way that I articulated my faith, the way that I practiced my faith and to liberate myself from a lot of what I felt was oppressing me. And so that led me to grad, grad, grad school. Not that mm-hmm. it is not grad, grad, <laughs> it's grad, but you know, did my PhD at Emory and got to focus deeper on these big ethical questions, which also led me to sex trafficking, human trafficking, evangelicals, and wanting to like take them down, but not really take them down. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe just a little bit. Just a little, like, you know, kind of like knock them down a peg. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Not in the not in the sound of freedom way of kicking down doors and and you know protecting uh, white children from you know whatever is happening yeah. uh, in in that movie, uh, <laughs> which I still need to see. A lot of my colleagues, you really like, don't. You, you don't need to see oh. it. Don't see it. No. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you as well because you are a Catholic, but you were not always a Catholic. How, how and why did you become a Catholic? Ooh, how and why? Uh, I blame it on seminary. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, you know, you you hear a lot about going to seminary and having your Jesus stolen, and I guess in in some ways maybe my Protestant Jesus was stolen. If that's if that's a thing, right? Um, but my experience in seminary, right, that three years of going through the Bible, through ethics, through preaching, systematic theology, like all these classes that slowly started to deconstruct my faith, the Protestant tradition, especially the one that I inherited, right, from my parents, made me ask big questions about whether the faith that I was practicing was actually personal to me, or was it mm. just, you know, was it a was it an inheritance, a hand-me-down that fit at one time but didn't fit anymore? And so two things happened that kind of precipitated the, like, formal, uh, full communion into the Catholic church, right? I learned that too, that it's not like converting to Catholicism. It's entering full communion. I was just like, well, that's, that's major. <laughs> you were almost um, there. You just have to go. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. but you know, about like a conversion in some ways, but like yeah. the first thing that happened that kind of turned me toward the Catholic church, aside from being just kind of like denominationally homeless and trying to figure out like, I loved God. I just didn't know what the shape of my like orientation to God was going to be is I went on a first date with someone and they took me to a Catholic mass. It was the first time I had ever attended wild mass (laughs) on a first date. And I remember going on that first date. I had my little Bible with me and I was like, do, 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 do. And he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I was like, I need, I need the Bible for when, you know, it's time for, we don't do that. (laughs) Literally, literally. It was just like, oh, you're not going to need that. Cause I had like my Bible and my notebook. Like I was, I was that Protestant. Like I went to church. I have, I have copious notes. Like if I write a book, it's going to be like epigraphs of my little Protestant evangelical notes. Um, but yeah, he was like, yeah, you don't need that. And I remember going to going to that mass and being like, hmm, this is interesting. But because I think he was on his way out of the church, like he was giving like nominal Catholic, it didn't stick until a friend who was also in seminary invited me to Our Lady of Lords. And when I went to Our Lady of Lords, I was like, this is what I've been looking for all mm. my life. Like the mm-hmm. perfect blend of the kind of high church tradition of like order and habit. Like I am a person who needs like structure and order and moments of silence and worship, uh, as well as like really great 
passionate music ministry and Lords had all of those things, like everything except for the woman preacher, but um, like <laughs> Lords had every wait a while on that one. I think, unfortunately, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, you know, maybe my children's children. If I oh, that's optimistic. Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but um, attending mass at Lords was like, oh, I feel like there's something here for me. So I continued to attend mass for a few years before I started the Rites of Christian Initiation. And also I might have been uh I might have been jumping the table. I definitely was taking the Eucharist before I was confirmed. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm Should that I edit that out and post. Oh, that sounds, you know. <laughs> yeah, just go ahead. Okay. I mean, you know, it's fine. That's why All I right. sometimes call myself a rogue Catholic, because I absolutely like I'm I'm a Protestant who believe like all are welcome. Like why are you mm-hmm. why are you right. fencing the table anyways? Uh, so I was taking Eucharist <laughs> for a long time, and I remember uh, one Sunday during the passing of the peace, there was a sister, like a Dominican sister, sitting next to me. And during the passing of the peace, something compelled me to ask her. I was like, Sister, um, I've been taking Eucharist, uh, but I am not I am not Catholic, and you know it's kind of weighing on me. And she was just like. She's like, nobody in this church is checking for you. I mean, this is the way that I'm like saying it. She didn't say it like that. It was a little more graceful, but she was just like, that's not a problem here. She's like, no one here would be concerned. She was like, you do what you need to do for your relationship with God. And no one here will, you know, will mind that. And so I felt like not only was that like my past to continue doing it, but it was also my moment where I was like, Oh, I like I I I f with this church tradition. I like I like this. Like I like mm-hmm. this for myself. Uh, and I think maybe a year later, I started RCIA and just continued to learn a lot from the Catholic tradition. I mean, it's just a rich intellectual tradition. I may not, and I do not agree with all of the church's social t- teachings. But I can deeply appreciate the way in which reason, right, you know, philosophical reasoning, theological reasoning brings the church to its conclusion about like how we are together in the world, particularly around like the social teachings of common good. Like for me, when I speak to other other Protestants, I'm like, no one's doing it like the Catholic Church. Like, have have you read this social teaching? Like, I mean, we've got encyclicals for days. And when we, (laughs) and I don't know that that's like a good thing, but like, but at the same time, I, I have a deep appreciation for the fact that you can trace the church's perspective um, on any given thing over time. And they'll make, they'll make small changes. I'm still hoping for big changes, right? Like we've already mentioned, I sure. want that women would be able to be ordained as deacons and priests in the church because yep. I'm like, if we're going to consider the church a woman, um she her then the church needs women that are proclaiming the gospel and you know sometimes i think that women do it better anyways no argument there i mean i i yes i i I, um i swing back and forth i mean i've i've worked within catholic institutions for for quite some time so so i'm not i'm not catholic myself i'm not anything but i i swing back and forth uh in my optimism versus pessimism about um the 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 timing of when that's going to happen i i am on board with you in thinking that it is inevitable that it will eventually um it will eventually happen 
that the ordination of women is something that in order to survive, the Catholic Church, I think, is going to have to do eventually. Um, and especially given some of the <clears throat> recent history it's had to deal with and the way that that would probably mitigate some of that history. Um, yeah, I just don't, I have no idea. I have no idea when. Sometimes I think it's going to be in 10 years and sometimes I think it's going to be in 300. Like, I, 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 I don't know, but you know, yeah. It's between the, uh, 10 and 300 then. I it's think probably we, in that range. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's a usually a pretty good guess of like when the Catholic Church is going to move on something is between 10 <laughs> they're gonna act, and yeah. 300 years from now. <laughs> So I was going to ask you about how you got into the work that you're doing um, about anti-trafficking ministries, because this is really fascinating to me about um, white evangelicals who are doing this work, first of all, right, and who are interested in this work. And um, I was just kind of curious as to how you came to this, right, and how you got involved um, because it's really compelling in this article that we have from you about you showing up at this ministry and being like, whoa, what is going on here? Right. Um, and the kind of work that they're doing is also fascinating to me. So I guess it's a two part question. Like, how did you get here? And then like, what are they actually doing at yeah. these ministries? Right. Like that's the other part that is like got my brain going all day long as I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> you know, like, are they just praying with people? Like, are they, like, are they rescuing folks? And like, what does that rescue look like? You know, like, yeah. so I just, this has been a journey for me all day long as I've been like plotting out scenarios as to like, what does this look like? And what are they doing? And like, what, and what are they I guess, what are they imagining they are also doing too, right? Is the the other piece of this. Because I imagine that they think that they're doing something that's really important here and something that's really salvifically important. And that might not be what's actually happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So how I got to the work is after I finished, um, graduated with my MDiv, I was one of those people who was just like, oh, I need to put my my hands to the plow. I got to figure out what good work I want to do in my community. And so I happened upon an organization um, in the city, in Atlanta, and I went to their like prospective volunteers meeting. And I remember arriving in the room. It was like in a church banquet hall, uh, in an affluent church banquet hall at that, like in an affluent part of town. And I was maybe one of like two black people, two black women in particular. Everybody else was um, primarily white women, predominantly white women, and maybe like the men that constituted like the organization's leadership. And so I remember sitting there feeling so disoriented because, you know, the, the racial demographics of Atlanta are like, 49% or I think at that time, maybe it was like 47 or 48% black. Um, and then the majority of the percentage otherwise is white. And then obviously you're accounting for, you know, different, di different ethnic populations outside of that. And so I remember feeling like, what does it mean for this organization that's predominantly white in constitution um, to one, like, do the work that they do being predominantly white and doing it in this particular way, right? It was very, um, I mean, it was very hopeful, right? On one hand, you wanted to be a part of, or I wanted to be a part of the project of like, how can we save these women? 
But given my sort of like theological training before and even the aspirations that I had after, I was just like, is this a perfect project? Like, is this, is this like, virtuous work or is there critiques that can be made of it? And so I found myself at that time, I pushed pause on becoming a volunteer for the organization because I just couldn't square that I was going to be one of a few Black people who were going out with this white organization to like save women, right? Um, So when I get to my PhD program about roughly like a year and a half later, and you know, you're thinking about what am I doing my dissertation on? What's What's my research? I went back to thinking about that moment of stepping into the room, of being one of a few Black women concerned about a city where Black women are very much caught up in commercial commercial sex work and commercial sexual exploitation, right? Um, the organization would conflate the two and just say that, like, it's all commercial sexual exploitation all the way down. You know, by the time I reach there, you know, I'm sort of my like black feminist woman itself who's just like, women could choose to do this work. So it's not all commercial sexual exploitation. Some of it is voluntary sex work and some of it is sex, you know, sex work under coercion. Or, you know, if you're reading Martha Nussbaum, then you come to the reality that like, we're all exploiting ourselves in some way, right? I literally sell my brain for a living. That's that's the part of my body that I'm exploiting on a almost daily basis. Um, so when it comes to like what the organization is doing, I mean, Kelly, it's very much what you said. It is very much rooted in this sense that one way to begin to kind of sow a seed in these women's hearts and sometimes the men that are, you know, traffickers, pimps, what have you, is to begin praying with them, to establish the simple relationship of spirituality, shared spirituality. What what do you need me to pray for you? You know, pray for you. Um, what can I pray for you about or with? Um, or sitting with the women, right? Sitting with the women at strip clubs, in the dressing rooms, um, praying with them. And just, it's really a ministry of presence that they okay. build that they build up over time and that they hope that in time, these women will decide of their own volition to step out of the life. Right. So when you say like, you know, are they being rescued? There's a, there is a rescue component, but it's like a consensual rescue component. It's not, it's not, I'm going to take you out of this. Right. Okay. I'm going to create or establish a relationship with you in such a way that at some point, my hope is that, I've planted enough of a seed that one day you're going to wake up and be like, I'm out of here. I'm going to use the phone number that I have. I'm going to make the call and the organization is going to come and get me. But the woman or the men have to make that decision for themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, one way to sum it up would be that like they're planting mustard seeds, right? You know, all you need is a mustard seed of faith and they're, they're, you know, not to put words in their mouth, but I think part of what their hope is that like the seed planted is going to reap a harvest and their job is to plant the seed, to consistently keep finding opportunities to plant the seed, to water it, to visit these women wherever they may be. Like, you know, they they were definitely vigilant, right? I think in maybe the article you might be referring to, 
Uh, and now I'm like, I don't know which one it is because I've written like two different ones and there's a whole dissertation. <laughs> um, but I know that like, at least in the dissertation, I talk about this Christian contemporary song. What is it? The one that's, um, there's no, what is it? Oh my gosh. It has something to do with like God basically like seeking people out in the dark. It's, oh, I hear the melody in my head. It's, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those infectious CCM songs where like, you know, they're the, the kids are in the dark and they're that just- That is like, not my wheelhouse. So probably not <laughs> I mean, I will say like having spent time with the organization, the organization that really like, you know, CCM is their jam. Yeah. That music orients right. them toward doing the work. Yeah. And there were ways in which I like I definitely got sucked in. Like I understand yeah. how the folks were like under the hill song chokehold because like mm. the music is it's it's compelling. Mm-hmm. It has it has the emotional swell that makes you want to be a part of this narrative of God looking, you know, no what is it? No mountain you won't climb up, no something. Oh my gosh, I wish I remembered the song. It's in the dissertation. It's in If only Leah Payne were here, I'm sure she would know uh, yeah. exactly what which song it is because she just wrote a book on this, but yeah, I yeah. um not my Yeah. Not not my. I could name a lot of songs uh, if you hum me a few bars, but if it's if it's, uh, it's yeah, I know, was gonna say like CCM, Christian contemporary, right? Not not, not, not there. Not yeah. happening. My 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 knowledge like begins and ends at like jars jar, jars of clay, like mid nineteen nineties. What would people you know. think if you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not ACDC, DC talk, DC talk, DC, DC talk. talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 probably yeah. offended, but anyways. But yeah, so the organization is about like planting, planting seeds, building relationships with women. And, you know, I cannot, I can't refute that. Um, But I think where I came to in terms of doing my own work with the organization and doing my research as an ethicist and as someone who uses like womanist frameworks is that the way in which that work plays out when it's kind of like a white against black, if you will, right? Given the history that something such as like vice work is situated in, right? Because that's where my that's where my dissertation that will, you know, one day soon or one year soon become a book is thinking about the fact that there are historical patterns that precede the way that contemporary trafficking organizations do their work. So right. contemporary pattern of the kind of conservative white anti-vice person who is trying to make sure that their their young white women do not fall into the hands of, at that right. time, it was about falling into the hands of immigrants, right? From Italy, from Ireland, like they didn't want young white women who were like, you know, the top commodity to fall into the hands of unsavory people. And then also that, you know, becomes black people as well, black men and black women. And so part of the work that I do is mapping on like what happened historically in the early work of these like anti-vice activism people and how we see the parallels in contemporary trafficking, anti-trafficking work, right? They work on the same premise about like what it means to be, what it means to be woman, right? I think I talk about the fact that like for the organization, it almost seems that there is a notion of like woman being about being white woman, right? White woman womanhood as yeah. kind of preference, you know, think about something like the cult of true womanhood or the cult right. of true domesticity. Uh, I definitely just got like some people on TikTok tried to drag me for comparing Taylor Swift to the cult of true womanhood. Oh, <laughs> come on. Like, come on. No. Like, and I am someone that like, 
likes Taylor Swift. Yeah. But like that stands. Come on. Thank you. Come but, on. It's like it's there. Kelly, I can I can confirm like Kelly big Swifty. So like, like seriously, from, like, like I am an a... aged Swifty, but like that yeah. is like a real like that is a real thing there. And mm-hmm. the way that she is upheld, like I mean, that needs some serious analysis. Like, yeah, Kelly, you're a real one. I appreciate because there were people who were like, I'm a fan and I, I absolutely see it. I agree. And I was like, see? And then there were people who were like, it's just about her race. You're against her race. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Like, no, because like, I, you know, I was like, I love all music. I like, I don't know. I like Billie Eilish, Lana Del Rey, Alanis Morissette, Courtney Love. Like, you know, I don't want to run the list of all the white right. women artists I, I love. But right. like, you know, when we talk about something like the cult of true womanhood or true domesticity, like it's about whiteness. Yeah. Like, not just like a quality of race. It's a social construct that like certainly begins in a white body, right? The core tenets mm-hmm. of whiteness certainly need a white body to begin it, but it gets carried through non-white bodies all the time. It is absolutely possible. And so like when I say something like Taylor Swift's whiteness, I'm not saying like because she's a white woman, this is what's happening. I'm saying that she performs her whiteness in a way that is, as you said, Kelly, it's compelling, it's replicatable in this iteration of society that we live in, watching everything that we're watching. Like, yeah, she sets an ideal and a standard that I think more would like to be the norm for womanhood or girlhood, right? I think there's right. a yeah. Code Switch episode on like yeah. uh, Taylor Swift and white girlhood. Yeah. Oof, we've alienated the Swifties or haven't. I don't know. I, I don't know where they stand. I'll have to ask my daughter uh, what, what, what to make of uh, all of this. I, so I was thinking, so I'm, as I'm, as I'm reading some of your work as well, like I'm thinking about, cause I've, I've been sort of attuned a little bit to this phenomenon of like white Christian evangelical men going on these like saving women from sex work tourism activist Mm -hmm. trips that like I think and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth here but I I think it was Adam Dunn the baseball player a few years ago there was a big issue about him like going to Thailand and talking about how he saved a bunch of women from on like summer vacation, like with his son, like through his church. And I'm like, this is very weird. And that's, <laughs> I think that was the first time I was really kind of attuned to it. But, but I often think about this relationship between the idea of human trafficking and race and Christianity and the complicated and often sometimes counterintuitive relationship that they have. Because I think about the way, for instance, that like the African slave trade was justified, which is, of course, like the greatest, you know, instance of human trafficking in history, but was justified by an almost like salvational um, justification that you are you are saving the savage from their own, you know, uh, necessary damnation, right? By 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 forcing them into this like life so that they can eventually be socialized and be proper Christians and so on and so forth. And I'm wondering, like, and of course, there's obviously a um, a patriarchal quality to that as well, right? There's there's a dimension there. And so when I sometimes see like white male Christians today, especially, right, t- 
talking about human trafficking and the need to stop it and and all that sort of thing. Like I can't help but think that it, there's this weird sort of perverse echo, right, of of that inheritance that is going on there, um, and that. I mean, Christianity obviously plays some kind of role, right, in in justifying that and sort of perpetuating that. Um, I don't know. So, what do you think of like that? That as kind of a, um, you know, a, a, a trajectory historically from like this from this origin point to sort of what we're seeing today, and especially like I mentioned, I mentioned kind of in jest, "Sound of Freedom" earlier, but like. I think that is kind of the embodiment of this of this of this idea that people have of like what trafficking is and how white people can save people from it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because because governments aren't doing enough, and and it, and 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 it's of course that was heavily marketed as like a faith based movie and and all this sort of thing. Like those things are all sort of intimately tied together, but it seems in a in a very counterproductive and very kind of like white savior sort of way. Yeah, I mean, that that language of white savior, like some of it is like hitting the nail on the head. But I also think when you're thinking about that historical trajectory between um, white male presence in chattel slavery and white male presence in what, you know, I think many evangelical spaces like to call modern day slavery um, is like I sometimes am like, I don't write about this. Like, you know, maybe this actually could come up in the book manuscript. I don't write about it in the early, and I'm saying that like, honestly, like I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm earmarking it for myself because there is something to be said about the white male presence in this faith-based anti-trafficking work. Yeah. And some of it makes me think, and I think this is the white male and white fem- female presence is thinking about it as an opportunity to relieve themselves of a kind of white ancestral guilt. Hmm. That um, one of my really early Hmm. hypothesis before I even started to write the dissertation was thinking about the fact, in particular, thinking about uh, the actors, the moral agents for anti-trafficking in Atlanta. Um, Atlanta being like, you know, what what is our our mantra here? Um, Resurgence is like our kind of, you know, the phoenix is always rising out of the, the ashes. Atlanta is the city that doesn't hate. Um, look at me living in Atlanta for 13 years and not even remembering. <laughs> I blame some of this on COVID brain. Like I have not returned to my normal brain pattern. I thought their mantra was like, let's go Braves or something like that. Is that not <laughs> Or it? Falcons? One of the two. Um, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, Atlanta being the city that that doesn't hate, being the city that was always rising from the ashes. One of the, one of the hypotheses that I had was that the city always needs something to do to position itself as like a city that's always kind of on the front, right? This is the home um, of MLK, Ebenezer, civil rights movement action. And so what does it mean to continue to extend the work, right? Atlanta is known as a capital of sex trafficking, which can be debunked depending on who you talk to. Some people say like, it's not true. It's just that Atlanta starts with an A and it appears on the FBI's list of like, you know, cities where trafficking is has high incidence. So it's not it's not the capital, but you can read it as the capital. Um, so I because oh, it that, shows up first on the list. Is that where you're because, like it's alphabetically yeah, first? That is some people's argument that because that it sense. shows up first on the list, <laughs> then people ran with it and said like, oh, it's the capital. And so my thinking early again, this is before I put like pen to paper, is that like okay, so. It shows up as the capital of sex trafficking, though we don't have a lot of data to necessarily verify it that way. 
And there are large evangelical church populations, right? Think about uh, the yeah. Passion, Passion Church that has its conference once a year, and they usually do something huge around human trafficking. So what does it mean for us to have like these, these things kind of um, colliding together to create a project, if you will, a project that you can always keep doing? And I thought about the fact that like white evangelicals in particular need a salvific project. They need something to do because without it, like what's what's their faith doing? How are they going to get to heaven unless they have a project where they're constantly proselytizing, um, you know, witnessing, um, being missional Christians, right? This is how the Great Commission is being fulfilled. Yeah, and so I think that, that that really plays out a lot among white evangelicals, particularly, I mean, we see it first and foremost in anti-trafficking work with white women. Uh, and then you see it with white men. I mean, the interesting thing, and like I've observed a few different organizations, either directly or indirectly, just kind of, you know, doing my own material, like looking at websites and following social medias, is that you often find there aren't a lot of males in membership with the organizations. And sometimes it's literally because of gender roles. It's because of the fact that like when it comes to engaging in relationships, these, you know, prayer relationships with these women on the street, men can't pray with the women. Women pray with the women. Men look out for the women who are praying with the women. Um, they have their own kind of like gender, like I am the I'm the watch, I'm the, the lookout. Um, and so I just wonder a lot about this being a way, a salve to heal white guilt, white ancestral guilt because of how their ancestors participated in in chattel slavery, right? Participated in owning slaves. Um, one of the early things that I talk about in my own work is that like the timeline between chattel slavery beginning and when we get like Emancipation Proclamation and Juneteenth is huge, right? The yeah. timeline between the first incident of what was called white slavery and the man law or like other laws that were established to ensure that like no, you know, no fragile white woman would get caught in sex worker vice was established like in much less than a century. It did not take a century. It barely took, you know, a few decades before they're like, let's get the man act so that no immigrant or black man can transport a white woman across a border for the purposes of selling them for sex. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's, I think there are a lot of ways to look at it, but I, I like my hypothesis of part of it being about healing white ancestral guilt. Um, but not realizing that if you're going to try to heal the white ancestral guilt, you actually do have to confront the very real ways in which it happened um, and like just confront like how are you showing up in the world as a white person among um, black people, right? Because there's a way in which doing anti-trafficking work in Atlanta, if you're coming from your nice house in the suburbs to go to the inner city of Atlanta, is still its own kind of like travel tourism, if you will, or not travel mission, you know, urban mission. Yeah, yeah, That's what I mean, yeah, urban mission. Yeah. Not, not travel tourism, but maybe travel tourism. <laughs> they want to have lemon pepper wings too. Well, and I think it's interesting too, because I think that these white evangelicals would frame that what they're doing are good deeds, right? And I think what you're showing is that that's not enough here, right? Like that we can't stop at that interpretation 
of what they're doing, that we have to pay attention to not only the racial dynamics, but also the historical dynamics at play here um, with previous reform movements that are based on that we would like to assume were reform movements that were also working for good deeds, but are based in racism, right? Yep. And structural oppression. And I think that that's what's so interesting and great about your work is that you're able to tie these past historical movements into the current anti-trafficking movements and say, look, like a lot of people get caught up on the fact that these just seem like nice people, right? Who are out there like doing the work, but this is actually a part of a larger movement where we have to pay attention to the way that racism undergirds this. And we have to pay attention to the gender politics of this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I find so neat about all the stuff that I've read of yours is the, the way that you do those intersections um, and look at this to say, no, we can't just like push it aside in a way that we might right? to say, you know, that they are doing these huge conferences about this. And yes, we should pay attention to human trafficking, but right. that's not enough, right? Um, yeah. Here. Yeah. The good intentions are not enough. I appreciate, you know, echoing that language is the good intentions are something that I think I say, say a bit in the research is like the promise and the problem of the work, because I don't want to summarily dismiss the work. I think right. it's important. I think one of the daunting aspects is that there seem to be more white evangelicals that are, that are invested in the work, right? I think um, John mentioned earlier, like the presence of white Christian missions who go to Thailand, to Thailand or go to Medellin, like they're going all over the place internationally, right, to do this work uh, in ways that, like, usually, like people of color are not doing. And there are there are actual reasons, right? In my early research, I find like we are not doing the work because, like, the work actually costs something to do, right? To be a part of these, right. these nonprofit organizations, you need to be a good development person. You need to be able to get out on the streets and not like those streets, but like, you know, business streets to get money, right? You have to right. be able to raise money for your salary and for your supper. And so if you think about like your regular, regular or average, like black or brown person, we're just like, I have to, I gotta, I gotta work and raise money to pay my salary. I don't have the capacity to do that. I'm barely hanging on by a thread. So it's very difficult to get the buy-in from people of color to do that work. Whereas like, some of these white people already have a lot of social capital. They have a lot of social capital, a lot of access to capital otherwise. And so that's a barrier to entry to like diversifying the work. Because I think one of my early responses was like, why don't you just get a bunch of black people? Just like we're in Atlanta, get more black volunteers. I remember talking to a close friend. I was like, you guys just need to get more black volunteers. And she's like, it's just it's not that easy, but also we don't want to seem like we're pandering to women that are that are out there just saying like by affinity group, you know, if you see another black woman out here, you're going to come out the life because you want to be like her. Like it's it's you know, it's really complex. And so that's why I try to like hang in tension that like I recognize I'm like they're doing good work. They're trying. Right. They're really trying to abate something 
that is, you know, affecting the lives of a lot of women, men, and children. Um, But at the same time, like, there's a cultural competency that they should be activating. There's the historical consciousness that's important. There's a even sense of like the Eucharist. I think maybe the article you all are referring to is I have one out called uh, breaking the body of evangelical whiteness. Yeah. So breaking the body of evangelical whiteness is like thinking about this Eucharistic solidarity. That's very much inspired by one of my like, Catholic theological sheroes, uh, Dr. M. Sean Copeland, a womanist systematic theologian, um, emeritus professor at Boston College. And so she thinks a lot about making the poor Black woman the anthropological subject, right? To shift theological anthropology to make a poor Black woman the center subject versus what the Enlightenment era gave us, where like white dudes are like cunts, like white people are the best. And so like Copeland really helped me to be like, no, there's there's room, uh, necessary room for us to think about what it means to center Black women's concerns and also to kind of break this body of evangelical whiteness that always wants to in- intercede on a lot of bodies aside from their own. I think that they have to break their own bodies before they try to break ours with their evangelical moral principles. Uh, That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) I I do want to ask you this because I'm really interested in the way that you use the word womanist um, and that you distinguish that from feminist and that that word kind of in term appears in a lot of your work. Um, what is important about that term? Like, and, and why, like, why do you highlight specifically the term womanist as distinct from feminist, um, in your, in your, in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about the distinct nature of womanism, it's the fact that it is doing intersectional analysis. It's thinking about race, gender, and class where, you know, quite a few waves of feminism before they, before they got the picture we're just focused on class and gender and womanism. Yeah. Womanists were like, hey, you know, Alice Walker and, you know, everybody else. And I mean, black feminists, too. Like, I don't want to strip black feminists out of the conversation because there is a movement from the feminist wave to the black feminists through uh, people such as the the letter from the Combahee River Collective that really begins to talk about the presence and what it means to focus on Black women, right? If Black women are free, everybody else will be free. Um, and womanist, when Alice Walker gives her gives us the, uh, the multi-pronged definition of womanism, is talking about all of these different facets of what it means to be a womanist. Um, but what's really key is that womanists are always focusing on the intersecting issues of race, class and gender. And as you keep moving through the waves of womanism, it becomes like race, class, gender, sexuality. Um, It goes and moves from being focused on black women in the church to like now I would say like we're in womanist wave four. And it's thinking about what it means to think theologically with black women who are no longer in the church because the church just doesn't serve them, right? I think about thinkers such as uh, Candace Benbow, who has a great book, Red Lip Theology, who's really thinking about the fact that like, yes, she learns a lot from the church, but she also learns a lot from like how she constructs herself as a woman through different applications of makeup and thinking about her experiences as a black woman in the church, as well as in like 
religious studies and theological spaces. So mm. when I when I make that distinction between womanism and feminism, I'm thinking about a framework that's always paying attention to race, class, and gender because it's it's always had to. There's I don't get to walk out of the house and ignore the blackness, though I don't I can't ignore my being black. Uh, probably can't ignore my, my being woman, but I think that's arguable. But like, I mean, you know, I think, you know, I hope you get why I say like, that's arguable, like, yeah. you know, yeah. because we can't make any, uh, we can't even make any assumptions of gender and sexuality at yep. this point. Yep. But like race is something that is so indelibly tied to us. Yeah. Um, that only, you know, only if your name is Rachel Dolezal, do you get to be like, I'm oh, oh boy. Oh, <laughs> boy. <laughs> You've got a lot of editing work ahead of you. No, no, we're keeping that in. Are you, are, oh, you no, know, it's not too soon for Rachel Dolezal jokes. It's really like, not. We, and I know that's not her name either. I think it's like... In is it really not? It's like Inkeche. It's, it's something. Wait, her... Wait. She changed her, her name. Oh, her new name. Yeah, her new name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I, I have not followed that, that particular... Uh, thread of our culture uh, since it was in the zeitgeist. So oh, yeah, um, no, it's it's okay. But yeah, womanist, yeah. womanist. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm actually teaching a class this summer that's called Tracing the Color Purple. I'm going to be teaching oh, it at um, Xavier University in Louisiana. They have an institute for Black Catholic studies, and so in neat. that class, we're going to move from uh, Walker's Color Purple. So I'm going to have students do a pre-read of the Color Purple watch the 80s version and then watch the 2023 version Neat. to kind of map the ways in which like the concerns and focal points of womanism have changed over time necessarily mm. so right even if you think about the critiques of the most recent color purple and how everybody was up in arms about the relationship between Seely and Suge Avery it's like <clears throat> did you read the book <laughs> it's always it's always been there, but also like Alice Walker, Ben told us like a womanist loves women sexually and non-sexually. It's literally always been there. Welcome to the party. Nicole, <laughs> have you read the book? It's not a question you should ever ask someone making a bad point. Like that is just... <laughs> <laughs> it's an occupational hazard it's like when i'm with my students and you know it's just like real silent in class and i'm like did you read and yes. they'll be like we've, we've all taught we've all been there yeah did you yes we, we know did you read did you read? Uh, <laughs> um kelly do you have anything else to I don't. I don't. You asked my last question, John. Oh, I did. I'm so, so you oh my God, No, I no, really it's bad. fine. It's great. I'm was glad it the you womanist did. one? That was it was the, the womanist one. Yeah, no, I had it, and you you asked it. So we great. are we are we are too like minded. I I just I want to ask one more one more thing, and that is. Uh, this is probably a very long question. I should probably save this for a different time. I, I but I, but I, I, I want to know how Black Catholicism got to Atlanta, and that's that's probably a long question. So I'm, I'm, I'm. <laughs> if there's a short answer to that, I just think that's really interesting because that is just not. It, it's. I don't think it's a, a thing that most people have any sense of or or any any awareness of that entire kind of like religious culture uh, at all. And I, I'm sure there's really fascinating reasons as to why nobody knows about it. But 
Um, is there kind of a short, fun answer? And if not, we'll just do a different episode where you explain that uh, to us. <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do another you're gonna have to do a different episode where yeah, where, where that's explained. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question though. But I think it I think it'll take more time than you care yeah. to spare. So <laughs> <laughs> just know that we out here we're we're here. There's quite a few of us. Well, can, can you can you kind of briefly then explain like what is what is the difference or like, where is, is there, is there a sort of moment of, of, of separation? Like, because, you know, I think it's, it's better understood in the Protestant vein of sort of what that separation is, but, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure it is in the, like, I'm not sure people would know what to imagine. For right. Black Catholic uh, versus for a black Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. Community. I mean, actually, I think, I think this is a great last question because it points right back to the bio that you read where I think like the last sentence I said that I am black Catholic, which means that like we uh, follow the tradition of the Roman Catholic rite, um, but we are driven by our, you know, blackness, our relationship to the African diaspora. And so black Catholicism really is a product of a community that privileges their blackness, their cultural blackness, their expressions of our artwork, our, you know, our liturgies, right? Black Catholic churches generally have their own liturgies, which obviously Mm. incorporate the traditional Roman Catholic liturgies, but like we are very musical, right? Our Lady of Lords, we sing the liturgy from top to bottom. I remember this past Sunday sitting near someone who was just visiting the church for the first time. And you can always kind of tell when somebody is visiting because they're thrown off. If they've been a Catholic in other, like more traditional Roman Catholic spaces, they're just like, what? why are they singing the Gloria like that? <laughs> they sing in the Lord's Prayer? Are they swaying to the Lord's Prayer? Do yeah. these people ever stop singing? Like, but it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's so built into the soul of Black folk, right? In my, in my Du Bois, uh, it's so built into the soul of, of at least like some Black folks. And so that distinction between what it means to be like Roman Catholic in the traditional sense and to be black Catholic is that we're really drumming up our blackness, right? Some will say that like, it's an opportunity to be radically black and faithfully Catholic or faithfully black and radically Catholic. I actually like faithfully black and radically Catholic because I think the Catholic church can always use a little zhuzh, it can use a little little spicing up, right? Um, you know, a little cult, it can use its own cultural awareness. There are it ways- It can use better music, it's really bad. Yeah. It can use better music, right? <laughs> there are not there are not a lot of bangers coming out of the Catholic church. Although I will say I have a colleague, Dr. Tony Alonzo, who like creates a lot of beautiful compositions for like Roman Catholic spaces. Um, uh, he's like a Latin Grammy nominated person. Like he creates like really beautiful music that's like compelling, right? But again, he's Cuban. So like- Yes, so right. So it has which, life like, to it, right. So, right. so it has life. I mean, there's a way in which the Roman Catholic Church has a lot of communities, right? Black, brown, Cuban, Asian, Indian, immigrant, refugee, um, that yep. they need to draw from more faithfully. There's a reason why we're all drawn to this church, as a way to live out our faith. And so they need to authentically draw from us to welcome us into, if we're going to talk about me being in full communion with the Catholic church, 
the Catholic Church has to be in full communion with me as a Black person, just like it does with, you know, my colleague Tony Alonzo as a Cuban or someone else as a South Asian. So, you know, that's that's the uh, the Black Catholic connection, an opportunity to be faithfully Black and radically Catholic, adding, adding a little season, little Lowry's onto the liturgy. I love it. Yeah, we're going to have to do more about 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 that. Because again, yes, that would be that would be a whole episode. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think we have like three episodes with you that we're going to have to do. At some we're point. going to, yeah. <laughs> we should invite Matt Kressler on as well. Like, talk, talk. yeah, do Matt too. Yeah, yeah, it would be great. Yeah. Have you had him on before? We oh, have yeah. had Matt on. We had him yeah. on to talk about um, the Exorcist and Catholic horror. So yes. yeah, he did an really paper on it. It was mm-hmm. really fun. It was really fun. Um, mm-hmm. He still hasn't made me watch The Exorcist, but one day. No, one day. I think before yeah. next Halloween, you're going to have to. Before next Halloween, I'm going to have all of you forced I've never me. seen The Exorcist. I know. The I old know. one and the new one, like they, they pair really well together. I love what the new one's heard. With the multi I've heard. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wait, I, you liked the new one? Because Matt hated it. I actually did like I was literally in my feelings by the end of the new one. Okay, it was it was compelling. I was like, I see, I see what they try to do now. They did mess up by starting in Haiti, Haiti, and then all of a sudden, like all hell is breaking loose. I'm like, you really, Mm. really start. You you started it this way. (laughs) That's the way I felt. I was gonna leave. I was like, this is a choice. I was like, y'all know. I was like, don't you? But like. I feel like they tried. They tried. I appreciated the effort. But like, if I were a consultant, I'd be like, you cannot. You need to start this in Boston if you're going to talk about all hell breaking loose. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Always start horror movies in Boston. That's 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 a good rule. That's where where horror is born in many different respects um (laughs) all right we should we should wrap up nicole this was so much fun it was awesome to talk to you um and incredibly interesting and um yeah we will we will definitely be 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 hauling you back uh in at some point in the future in the meantime uh you can go ahead and tell people where to find you and your work as so insofar as you as you want to do that so go ahead yeah yeah I, I guess when you said like find me and my work I was just like oh my gosh my personal website is for the birds like where do people go to find oh don't work? nobody says that nobody yeah. ever is like go to my personal website no, and show. no. Gener- like, generally it's social media so yeah. okay yeah check out, I mean, check out my terrible posts on twitter is what people usually yeah, say it's generally so, yeah. what happens yeah <laughs> I mean more more from me on uh I'm on the clock app on tiktok under the name at spicy ethics prof uh, Love it. Yeah. So spicy <laughs> ethics prof, uh, where I'm giving lots of hot takes on pop culture and ethical living and random slices of life. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, I think maybe under spicy ethics prof too, or my name. I don't know. Honestly, honestly, just Google me, uh, Nicole Simmons. <laughs> I have a, I have a fairly good, like, you know, the good stuff will come up if you Google me, you know? So mm-hmm. you can Google me and whatever comes up, that's, that's pretty reliable. 
You are at Nicole underscore Simmons on Twitter, and your your name on Twitter is Spicy Ethics 2.0. So there you go. I did it for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This is what happens when you have too much of a digital footprint, and you're like, I I, I don't know LinkedIn, Facebook. <laughs> I, 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 look, Nicole, I am very impressed that you are like you are in TikToks because, like, you know, I that is woof. That is beyond my my oldness as an internet person to like get into TikTok. So I keep being tempted by it. Like, I keep I being tempted tempt- too, but I'm, I'm like, tempted. I'm just not going to do this. Yeah, I'm tempted yeah, yeah, yeah. by it. But I, it's, it started as just like me being a lurker, and then. One day I made a uh, a parody of the Bama Rush Girls, except make it like faculty, my first faculty meeting. So I did like a outfit of the day for my first faculty meeting. And like from there, I just started doing stuff randomly. And so I think my most recent post was about Taylor Swift and whiteness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is that the, the one that went kind of viral and people got really mad at you about? That, well, that went kind of viral but it was actually last week's uh first black woman pilates method instructor that was oh right 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 yes yeah that's the one that went viral where everybody was like i never knew this is amazing so that was really cool yeah yeah, every couple of weeks i go viral for just like you know dispensing helpful information and i and i like that part of tiktok when people actually listen to your long rants about either like some cool historical fact or like Social critique, like, you know, most people agreed at the Taylor Swift thing. And then there were some people who were just like, you black women, leave Taylor alone. Someone, yes. someone you black women to me. And I was just like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Almost quite literally, I was like, hey, don't hey. like that. Meanie. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you were mean. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm still not going to do TikTok. I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I don't know. We probably will at some point. It's, it feels inevitable, but I'm. I'm it does, I'm, doesn't it? I I'm know. Pushing it off yeah. for as long as humanly possible. Keep, keep that energy. I I respect the people who are not there because once you get once you get, <laughs> it's hard to get out. It's hard. I bet. I, yes, but maybe that's what I'm worried about. It's super TikTok entertaining, though. I will say, I learn a lot and I laugh a lot. It brought me through the pandemic. So. All right. Well, we'll think about it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Or not. (laughs) Uh, Great to talk to you, Nicole. As always, um, you can find us on Twitter and on Blue Sky. Look us up. You can email us at POK at cageclub.me. And um, we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.